Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hope you're all good. Welcome to another episode on the DNF1 F1 podcast. So it's just following the Easter bank holiday weekend. So I hope you're enjoying it wherever you are. Of course, we're still in lockdown at the moment in the UK. So hopefully everyone out there, wherever you are around the world listening, is safe, looking after yourself and following the appropriate guidelines set out by your respective government and health services. So joining me on this episode is my co-host Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm full of joy and chocolate right now. <laughs> you managed to clear out the riffraff on the farm then with your scythe. Finally. Yeah, it took a while, but they finally got the, they finally took the hint. Good, good, good. Was it messy or did you uh, just put the message across by without using force? Yeah, my, 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 I use verbal force rather than physical force. Oh, good. Thank God for that. It's less of a clean-up job afterwards, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, yeah, so a bit of change of pace. We were talking about this in the last episode we released uh, bef- on Thursday. The Thursday just gone. And this episode, we're going to do something a bit different. So, we are going to discuss in this episode some of our favourite cars uh, of yesteryear. Some of the cars that we think are up there with the greatest of all time for different reasons. And this is a two-part episode. So, this first part is going to be going through a list of cars that Courtney has chosen to be up there some of his favourite cars of all time and then the next week's episode we're going to get on to my list of cars so Courtney's got his list right now so about to get going so grab a drink grab a coffee grab some food get comfortable and we are going to bore your ears off for the next hour with our analysis on these uh, some of these legendary iconic cars of yesteryear we've got more rabbit than Sainsbury's that's it <laughs> Did you just come up with that one off the top of your head, or did you have that written down? Well, yeah, I had it written on my hand. Yeah. Because <laughs> imagine you just sitting there in your head while I'm talking, you're just going, rabbit, 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 like the old Chaz and Dave song. Good old Chaz and Dave. Oh, may rest in peace, eh? You know. Yeah. Uh, but no, what, I mean, they don't make music like that no more, do they? No. No. I, I, I... I'm not going to lie to you, right? I listen to, um, I still listen to Chaz and Dave. I don't care. I bet you do. It's your old East End jig in the pub. Got the old lager. <laughs> go, yes. Put the old Chaz, put old madness. 
Where's your madness? Honestly, honestly, me and Cameron, after work on Saturday, we actually blur out at Chaz and Dave. <laughs> What's your favourite Chaz and Dave song? Oh, ah, oh, okay. See, Rab- Rabbit's good, but it's like it's the mainstream one, isn't it? It's yeah, all yeah. That, like, like, it's mainstream. Yeah. Um, I like London Girls. I feel particularly Cockney when I sing London Girls. Oh, yeah. Um, Give us a rendition. Give me a London girl every time. I'm gonna find one. I've made up my mind. Give me a London girl every time. I want a London girl. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. That's uh, that's uh, well done. Well done. And and no pleasing you tugs my heartstrings. Well, we're waiting. I can't sing that. I can't. I, I might cry. I All might right cry. Then. All right, then. I won't ask you to sing any Vera Lynn either. As much as you know. We'll meet again. Oh, that's it. That's what we Don't know where, don't know where. No. Hey, she's an extinct girl. Yeah, she is. Old Vera. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Class, though. Really? That's down the road from where my folks live. Yeah, Plaster, I believe. Wow. Don't know to... That's proper East End back in the day. It's, do, you know, do you know she sang off of Blowing Bubbles? No, she did really? She did. Oh. I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, wow. I'll look forward to that one then. I mean, I'm not even a West Ham fan. I'm actually impressed by that. Wow. There you go. I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Cheers. Pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so now, moving on to the next part of the podcast, as we mentioned earlier, we are going to talk about some of our favourite cars, um, give a little bit of a tech analysis as to what made these cars so special, and just really talk about how great they were in their, in their own respective campaigns, and why we consider them to be some of the best. So this week, I've asked Courtney to give me a list of some of his favourite cars, and obviously we're going to talk a little bit about why they were so great, and next week I'm going to do the same with mine. So of course... For those of you that know us well or have listened to this podcast will know about certain teams that we are interested in more than others. Although I will say, I will admit, uh, based on our interest, it's quite a varied list that Courtney has given me. So I'll congratulate him on that. And it's a very good list Thank as you. well. So Courtney, if you want to start us off with uh, your first one. So remember, we're going to do this cro- uh, chronologically, please. Yeah, that's like a plan. So my first pick was the 1988... McLaren, otherwise known as the MP4-4. Oh, that's a very, very good car. That, Funny enough, that was actually going to be on my list originally, but since you've named that, I'll have to revise that. So uh, what was it about that car that was so special for you, Colt? Um, three things. So, first of all, it was one of the most dominant, if not most dominant car in Formula 1 history. Yeah, that's right. The second, yeah, yeah the, the second, it has, or well, it had, I'd say the most iconic driver pairing, again, in Formula 1 history, in the great Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost. And finally, you know, on a, on a lighter note, I thought it was a bloody good looking car as well. <laughs> it had a very sleek look to it, um, body wise. It did have a very sleek look to it, I will say. 
Um, I mean, looking through some of the stats on this car, it was quite remarkable how dominant it really was. It won 15 races out of the 16 in the campaign, and this was back in 1988. It weighed as much as a toaster. It was like 540 kilograms, and that was without yeah, the driver. Back then, back then that, that was well over 30 years ago. I mean, considering the 80s was a decade for big, brute, massive... Um, and they designed a car so sleek, so sh- you know, so shallow, so slim, and it was so good. Um, they had it was arguably one of the most, if not the most, dominant cars in Formula One history. It has the record still for the highest win percentage of any car in Formula One history, around ninety three and a half percent. It was the last of the V six turbos engines as well, so. It was a Honda V6 Turbo. It was the last of its kind before the turbo engines were banned in 1989. And obviously this season, in particular in 1988, the rule changes were there in 1988 to reduce fuel capacity to around 150 litres. So if you compare that to around today's cars, it was around 140 litres today. Um, fuel density is around 0.75 kilos per litre. So 105 kilograms these days around 140 litres. So... It's fairly close to the efficiency and fuel capacity of the modern-day V6 turbos that we use now. And, of course, the aim was there. If you could get improved fuel efficiency, the the, the better you could run the car, the more performance you could get out of it. And, as I said, the aim was to reduce it to that and obviously have a mandatory 2.8-bar turbo boost limit. Get a bit ticky there. And, you know, to transition into the 1989 regulations where turbos would be banned. The only race... Funny enough that it lost at, was in Monza in 1988 and Ayrton Senna was leading this race and he had an incident where he tripped over Jean-Louis Chalessa's Chelles, um, Williams whilst lapping him at Monza at the first chicane, a very anti-retophilia. He just went too that far into the, the first that, corner. That was the year that Enzo Ferrari died as well. It was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, quite. so that was a particularly emotional moment for the uh, for the fans there at Italy. Yeah, no, absolutely, because obviously, obviously, what followed in that race. Um, yeah, yeah, it was an incredible piece of innovation. The, I mean, the engine itself; it was only a one point five liter turbo compared to the one point six that we have now. It produced as much as nine hundred brake horsepower, and this was in nineteen eighty nine, eighty eight, I should say. It was incredible. Um, a famous quote: Alain Prost, four time world champion. He'd reportedly told Ron Dennis that he knew the car would win the championship after only testing it for about half an hour. It wow. took It was incredible. Wow. Uh, it took Ayrton Senna to, a, to his first world championship as well. Um, you know, a great piece of machinery as well. He'd won so many races that season. I think it was eight races Senna had won and Prost had won seven. It was also the car as well, which uh, boasts arguably the most famous qualifying lap in history, Ayrton Senna's pole lap in 1988 in Monaco. Where that was when he felt like he was having an out-of-body experience. Absolutely, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And in that season, Senna took 13 pole positions as well, including that one. And get this, guys. he was For those of you who haven't seen it, of course, there's not actual footage of Senna like in terms of the actual lap itself, in in the normal conventional way, there's video footage of onboard scenes which were put together to kind of simulate that. Unfortunately, the actual lap wasn't, but there's a really good video of Ayrton Senna 
in uh, the Formula One game that Murray Walker does commentary over for this lap. Hence why uh, they did that, because they don't have the actual footage. And the actual lap itself was 1.4 seconds faster than even his own teammate, Alain Prost. So you had a, a two- short track as well. Yeah, you so you had... It, yeah, in Monaco, it was just ridiculous. And it was 2.6 seconds faster than the next car back, which was Gerhard Berger's Ferrari, which... 2.6 seconds in a Formula 1 car is literally night and day. Yeah. It's, you know, the gap that a Formula 1 car can travel in 2.6 seconds is staggering. So if you were to see the cars go flat out for 2.6 seconds and stop dead, and then you'd see that gap between Senna and the next rival car after his teammate, it was absolutely incredible. This car scored 199 points in the Constructors' Championship, which... Back in the 80s, you had the old system where it was nine points for a win, six for second, third had fourth, etc., down to sixth place. Um, it scored three times more points than the second place Ferrari team in the Constructors' Championship. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, you think the margins between Mercedes in their dominant years and, and Ferrari in their dominant years, and then to see that the winning Constructor scores three time, almost three times as many points as the next place team is just ridiculously incredible. Um, I mean, looking further at this car, there were so many great technical innovations with this car that I really enjoyed. Uh, legendary mechanic Neil Trundle, who some of the older Formula 1 fans will know who I'm talking about, Neil Trundle, was very pivotal in McLaren's success, referred to the MP44 as the perfect package. It was lightweight, outstanding downforce, uh, highly effective brakes and suspension with a fabulous engine. It was arguably one of the greatest cars of all time. It's considered McLaren's best car and you can absolutely see why um, I mean just to get a little bit techie guys just to show how great this car was the engine itself was mounted so low in the chassis it needed a new 6 speed free shaft gearbox to accommodate it which was so unheard of but the aero benefits were so good as a result of this and this gave the car a shallower body profile the drivers were also made to lie more prone so the current seating position of Formula 1 driver if you've seen they sort of sit like they're sort of halfway laying on their back a little bit. Yeah. And in this car, they had to sit back even more because it was almost a bit unheard of. They used to sit a bit further forward back in those days. So it was a more similar position to how they do now. And this is something that suited Ayrton's driving style very, very well. He really enjoyed it. And uh, Alain Prost, he didn't like it, believe it or not. He wanted to sit a bit further forward, a bit further up. Uh, and he felt it wouldn't work with the aero um, package. But the wind tunnel results didn't support Prost's claim, so they continued with this. And this was a Gordon Murray design car, very legendary designer, Gordon Murray, chief aerodynamicist Bob Bell, involved in McLaren's setup as well. Very pinnacle in the 80s of McLaren's success um, and early 90s to some degree as well. They had this philosophy, they wanted to lower everything in such a way that enabled uh, the car's frontal area to be reduced by about 10%. And what this did was it improved the lift-to-drag ratio by around 6%. Now, for those of you that are probably wondering, what is lift-to-drag ratio? So basically, in a nutshell, if the lift-to-drag ratio is higher, it means that the car is going to be faster in the straights, it's going to have better fuel economy because there's less drag coefficient on there. It's just better all round. You want to have a higher ratio as much as possible of the airflow over the front of the car to push it down. And... You know, it, it, this allowed it to have a simpler rear wing that be kept further from the upper deck of the car and a longer wheelbase. So the car was just uber fast. It was like a bullet. It was so fast. 
Um, it wasn't too low to the ground, though. Um, there was a good interview with Gordon Murray when he was talking about this MP4-4. And the reason why he chose to uh, to have it a bit higher to the ground, because most Formula 1 cars, you prefer to have it lower to improve downforce, he wanted to sacrifice this downforce and make it more comfortable and easier to set up. And I think, given how history has told the story on the success of the MP4-4 and how dominant he was, I'd say it was an absolute spot-on call. So it was a brilliant piece of tech, this car. Must say. Um, I, I think 10-1-2 finishes in the season as well. The only car that was more successful in that regard since was the W05 in 2014 for Mercedes. The only car um, that's had more one-two finishes. It seemed that with the with the McLaren that, at that time, it just seemed that everything just pieced together perfectly. You know, all the concepts you've mentioned and the driver pairing, it seemed like everything was just there's no such thing as perfection, particularly in Formula One. But I just felt, I just felt, in terms of putting everything together, that's as close as you can really get. I mean, we've seen, yeah, you're right. We've seen in modern Formula One how Mercedes have dominated in recent years, and Ferrari had their period, as we mentioned. Red Bull had their period in the early 2010s, and to such a degree, the domination that the McLaren MP4-4 in 1988 had with Senna and Prost as a partnership, Ron Dennis at the helm, you know, turned turned in uh, Murray as well, working on the car. It was just incredible piece yeah. of machinery. It all came together. It was like the perfect combination. It's kind of like, you, you know, you're a cook and you've got fusion cuisine and you're trying to whip up this most amazing dish and all the little elements on their own are good but they're not great on their own you put it all together and you end up producing the most amazing dish that you could think of it yeah. was it's quite incredible and prior to the as i said the turbo ban in 1988 did put a hamper to it to a degree but it really summed up what was great about that honda mclaren partnership i think that's what made it famous and something equally perhaps they struggled with when the partnership resumed back in uh, 20, what, it was 2014? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, 2015. There was, a lot, there was a lot of pressure on them. Yeah, so, you know, but in, yeah, so in 2015, so it was just so difficult for them to get that right. And so, you know, so moving on to the next car after this. So, what was that one, Courtney? It'll be the 1993 Williams. Ah, that's another good choice. I, t- I tell you yeah. what, like, I'd not seen this list too far in advance. When Courtney sent me this, I really did enjoy some of these cars. So you had the Williams FW15C for Williams. And this was the very much larger Renault V10 engine, 3.5 litres as well. So that definitely whipped up quite a noise, I will say. This one was a very dominant car as well. He got 10 out of 16 wins that season. Uh, it was driven by Alain Prost and uh, a young Damon Hill. Hill, yeah, that's it. Who was replacing? Uh, so Alan Prost was replacing Nigel Mansell, who was the champion back in 1992 with the FW14B Williams, which is another great car as well. But he went off to IndyCar after winning the 1992 F1 World Championship. He went off to IndyCar and Ricardo Patrese. Uh, so, yeah, Ricardo Patrese. Uh, was also his teammate as well, but he moved on. So yeah, Damien Hill, Alan Prost. Alan Prost had came back from a sabbatical, drove for one more season and won the World Championship. Quite a dominant fashion as well, before hanging up his 
racing gloves once and for all. 15 pole positions out of 16 as well. Quite remarkable dominance. It was so (laughs) fast. Um, This was another brilliantly dominant car. It had double the number of points of the second place team, which was McLaren. Um, It just made mincemeat of the field. It really did. Um, And this car really uh, personified how good electronic aids were and that, that level of technology, which was banned subsequently in 1994. Of course, with the controversy that followed, particularly with Benetton and a few other teams. But, I mean, I'm just going to run through the list of the bits of technology that this car had. The electrical aids, it had active ride, active suspension, traction control, uh, anti-lock braking, uh, a setup which could be adjusted between the corners. Uh, It also had the ability to stall the rear diffuser to reduce drag down the straights. And even had a switch between manual and automatic gear shifts. In terms of electronic goodies... This car is still considered one of the most advanced F1 cars of all time. And this is even including the brilliant pieces of machinery that we're seeing now in the Turbo Hybrid era. It literally would not look out of place compared to those cars. It was incredible. Now it's over 25 years ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is kind of like looking at a picture of it in a Top Trumps then in your bedroom when you're like six years old. Of course, when this car was around, I was only one or two. So I wouldn't have really seen yeah. it much live. Um but this was definitely a car for the ages. Believe it or not, though, this car, despite its dominance in qualifying and season, it only achieved one one-two finish of the year, believe it or not. This was at the French Grand Prix. Um, so despite its dominance, it just really never got it together. Um, I mean, it was an evolution of the 92 FW14B. I can tell already, Courtney, by that side, you were a bit surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I, I think that... Um, I think that Senna would have outperformed these McLaren massively. But I've had a part to play in that, though. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, there were a few races that season where, you know, I mean, Senna was brilliant in there. Obviously, Ferrari was quick as well. Schumacher. Michael Did Schumacher had won in... Uh, so, Michael Schumacher won in Estoril in 1993, that season. Yep. Funny enough, he actually beat Alain Prost in that race as well, in the Benetton. And obviously, the famous race in Donington 1993 as well. You know, great race that was with Ayrton Senna. Of course, if you haven't seen it, brilliant. Probably the best first lap you'll ever see in Formula 1 where Ayrton Senna in the wet. I think it was, what, fifth or sixth he was? And he came all the way into the lead in literally a a few seconds. Yeah, he just ran away with the race. It was incredible. One of the best wet weather performances I think I'd ever seen from any driver. Hence why a lot of people consider Ayrton to be the most talented Formula 1 driver, in some cases the greatest of all time, in some people's opinions. It was really incredible, but obviously we're talking about the Williams, so... Um, yeah, I mean, the the car itself was designed uh, at the outset around the new tech. It was under the technical di- directorship of Patrick Head and Adrian Newey as the chief designer. Um, obviously with the systems as well, Paddy Lowe, back in his peak when he was younger days, when he recently returned as the chief technical officer for this car. And he was systems engineer who wrote and developed most of the software necessary to make the active ride system work, which was a big thing, this active suspension system as well. And just to, for those of you that are unsure what this active suspension system did, it was, it kind of, how can I describe this? Um, Bear with me, we're trying to have a little TED moment again with my pad. But it used so the active suspension <laughs> used hydraulic pressure to lengthen or shorten the uh, acutators, which were fitted to each wheel 
um, which was determined by a computer reacting to the measured loads upon the car at the time. So obviously the loads that go through the car, the forces generated on there, it's obviously the computer's monitoring that all the time and reacting to it. And it allowed the platform of the car itself to be maintained in the most aerodynamically efficient position that you could imagine at all times. So it was almost like at any point of the circuit, the computer would calculate the trajectory and the load that was going on the car and it would position the car with the suspension at the exact position where it was most aerodynamically efficient. So it wouldn't compromise on turning or speed and stuff like that. It'd take all that into account. And it was therefore immune to um, you know, any sort of other aero compromise that it faced, resulting in uh, when a conventional car usually pitches or dives or rolls on its suspension you know, it would do that and the computer would sort of mitigate that. And this capability was worth seconds over lap time. This is why it was so strong in qualifying. It was just so fast over more conventionally suspended cars and Williams were the first team to really exploit this technology and they kind of got on top of it in 92 with the FW14B. This is why we say an evolution on the concept where they improved it even further before, of course, electronic and age like that was banned in 1994 and electronic digital control was really the breakthrough that allowed the full potential of of the active suspension or the active ride system if you like which had been tried on and off in f1 since 1983 and it took a while for this to be realized so it was like 10 years of development behind the scenes before they realized it's kind of like mercedes now with their uh, dual active steer um yeah dual active steering system it's just das uh it takes so long for these to develop and takes so much time and in this case it was no different for williams and it just gave them a system that really responded so quickly to the car and you know because of this the car could be kept in much narrower range of ride heights and rake angles um that then a more conventionally sprung car, the aero surfaces could be made much more peaky, if you like. Um, and, and by that, I mean like the downforce was no longer required to be consistent over anything like uh, a wide range of, of attitudes. It just stuck to a specific level where it was always yeah. performing. There was no... You see now, I think in modern Formula 1, you see an issue that perhaps Ferrari in particular have had is that their car aero-wise is not necessarily bad. It's just not consistent. So over one lap, it can be very quick on a certain track at a certain time, at a certain surface and temperature, all of those variables that come together. But over the course of a race weekend, that car will peak and that car will also flounder. Whereas this Williams, it would always peak. Um, it just always had ways to be on top of it and it never struggled. Um, it, I mean... It, the one thing about this car that was also good as well, it allowed the front wing and diffuser in particular to be fashioned much more aggressively so they could generate even more downfalls without the risk of the aero efficiency being compromised. Um, and another thing with the, my new favourite thing now, the lift-drag ratio, um, that in, had an improvement around about 12% over the previous car. So as we were talking about before, it's with the lift-drag ratio where it's able to maximise its speed and efficiency on the straights but also not mitigate that in the corners. This car managed to do that even more. So it, it was just incredible. With a shorter wheelbase, um, they expected it to be slower than the previous car but this was definitely not the case. It was significantly faster on almost every track than the 92 
season winning Williams as well. So you can imagine how dominant this car was. Nobody had a chance. The fact that some drivers won in certain races over it was incredible. It's a reflection of their ability. Obviously, yeah. that we that it, 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 the stats the, the, attached to those said drivers says it all. But the '93 season in particular, I think, is a real kind of um, you know telltale sign of how good the likes of Senna and Schumacher were. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the 1993 season, most people will look back on this and think, oh, Michael Schumacher and Benetton, it was like a sleeping giant. He was ready to be woken. But the fact was, they were so far behind in terms of development of what, um, let alone Williams, it was like behind Ferrari and McLaren that weren't really yeah. able to get on top of this. And obviously the controversy that followed in 94, where Benetton and Ford were accused of still adopting electronic systems but they just couldn't be discovered uh, which in some part helped Schumacher a long way to winning his first championship as some say but the fact that Williams were just on top of this from the get-go it was just incredible I mean how dominant that car really was and the only surprise is that it didn't win more races than it actually did that season um, I mean, we talk about the engine as well with that car. I mean, we've been talking about how impressive the car was and the electronic systems, but the engine was a piece of genius from Renault as well. They really were on top of their game. I mean, at the time, they, uh, a little bit techy again on the engine, they introduced new con rods and a revision of the inlet and combustion chambers in the car, making it more efficient, more streamlined to allow the uh, fuel flow and the exhaust gases to flow move freely without any wastage and as a result of this it took it up to around 780 brake horsepower so it was about 30 brake horsepower more than the previous version and it was a masterpiece by engine designer Bernard uh, Dudo and it was F1's best engine by far at the time I mean this bear in mind obviously we talked about the turbo engines having 900 brake horsepower we've now reverted back to the V10s which have a bit more grunt to them but nowhere near as much brake horsepower and it completely trumped the Ford V8s that McLaren and Benetton were using. So much more powerful. And it was lighter and more... Uh, it was a lot less thirstier than the Ferrari V12s because the wow. Ferrari V12s were incredible sound-wise and they were powerful, but the fuel economy in them was rubbish. And, you know, it was really, really bad. Like, you, th- those cars would always run overweight by such a margin because of the fuel they had to put in of course the return on it was they get more power but you'd be carrying more fuel which would upset your car's balance it upset the airflow it upset its its downforce ability its performance in the corners it's just so much that the engine would have to counter and mitigate but the v10 the renault 310 on that williams uh, fw15c was just incredible and it was easy to see why this was the class of field and it had a very nice livery as well despite the ban on cigarette companies. That was the, uh, the Sonic the Hedgehog car. Uh, yeah, it was. In Donington, it was. They ran that promotion yeah. back um, when Sonic 2 was released, I believe it was. Is that right? Yeah. Um, do you want to know something? I don't know if you know this. Well, I've said quite a lot on stuff with the Williams. I feel like the fans and did followers you... of this might want to listen to you say something on this. Did Go you on. know? Did you know that... Uh, the 93 McLaren, I think. You know the 93 McLaren? Mm-hmm. It actually had, like, a drawing of a squash hedgehog on it. Is that right? Yeah. Honestly, if you look it up, it actually has actually what a squash hedgehog. I might, have, I might try and find a picture of that. I'm going to put it up there. So, uh, listeners, yeah, if, 
on the if you're watching this video on YouTube, I'm going to put some of the pictures of some of the cars on this as well. But let us know. Um, I'm going to see if Courtney's theory is proof correct. So yeah, let us know if you can see a picture of a squashed hedgehog on the car. I did not see that. Very eagle eye if that's the case. Um, yeah, they did. I think I think it's like a little subtle like in joke within the team because it was because the '93, the '93 uh, Williams was very much known as the Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. Because it was, I think Sega was one of the main um, sponsors. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's no, that's mad. That's I didn't realise that that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously we don't endorse the harm of animals and stuff like that, but in terms of an advertisement, that's definitely something worth having a look for. Um, I mean, another good thing about this car, actually, I should say, was power steering. Now, the, you know, obviously the predecessor in 92 for the Williams uh, didn't incorporate this as much, but the 93 car did. And this is quite a big thing, because you see this in Formula 1 cars now with power steering. This is why you see a lot of the drivers that, younger drivers that are quite lean and quite slim, obviously being able to handle these beasts that are like 800 kilos, including the driver in them. They're really heavy now. But... Back in the 90s, obviously before power steering, Williams had a driver like Nigel Mansell. He was quite a bit of a burly chap. You know, he could he knew his way yeah. around, you know, being able to handle something like a Formula 1 car without no real difficulties. And then you've got someone like Alain Prost, who's more of the, uh, how can I put this, more elegant, I suppose, in his build than someone yeah. like Nigel. Yeah. Couldn't quite rock the uh, old burly moustache look that Nigel used to don so famously. And, at the, you know, Nigel was hardly... Uh, a pinnacle of athleticism himself, but you know that that's how it was in Formula One in those days. Not to say he was a big chap, but he could definitely handle himself. Whereas Alain Prost was not quite um, as strong as that, so power steering was quite important, and it really did suit Williams being able to incorporate Alain into a car that he was only in for one season, and he hadn't had much experience with, and he was able to get on the season with a get go. I mean, yeah. Damon Hill struggled at first, but then went on to win a couple of races in succession in Hungary, for example. Um, you know, went on from there. So, you know, that, that's the sort of thing. It's stuff like the, these little bits of innovations, obviously, we take for granted now with Formula 1 cars, but Williams at the time were like the pioneers for this. Electronic aids wise, it just showed the epitome or the pinnacle of what a Formula 1 car is capable in terms of technology. And it stood as the ultimate showcase of where F1 would have been heading, but for the interruption of the regulation changes to try and contain the speed of these cars and give more control back to the driver. Because, of course, as much as the electronic aids are, are helpful, people want to see the drivers. Yeah, take right. away half the spectacle. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is something that happened a couple of years ago, of course, with driver aids and engineers being told not to assist the driver over radio. They couldn't tell them what to do and stuff. Obviously, that's gone now and every time that there's a slight problem where the car's running a bit poorly they just go turn to strap four or strap five or this that and everything else and you've got all these menus and buttons and subcategories within them bear in mind they're trying to do 200 miles an hour at the same time mental yeah we are as uh saying these we both like to imagine ourselves being in a racing car i don't think we'd be able to do that i reckon i could have a go at it but it's 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 a hard thing to do. Obviously, these guys don't learn this overnight. Yeah. But I'm sure you could. It's kind of like when you're using your phone. You know, you have to do this and do that. But I think I know, mate. I know. it all takes practice. I don't know. I mean, your phone doesn't go at 200 miles an hour or anything like that. So you know, that's that. That'd be quite funny if they did. To be fair, I think it would if one or two people were able to get hold of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think the less said on that one, the better, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I think a good chance to move on to the next car. So what's the next car on your list, Courtney? One word, Braun. Oh, I thought you might go with this one. So the Braun 001, I said I thought you might go with this one. I know exactly which ones you've picked. I'm trying to tease the audience here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the Braun... <laughs> Double zero one or double o one, some called it, um, was only for one season in two thousand and nine. Now, for those of you that are younger Formula One fans and aren't too familiar with the origins of Braun, basically, this was uh, the first car of the new regulations in two thousand nine, which was introduced to reduce downforce by around fifty percent, because we had a situation where. The cars in 2007 and 2008 were getting very extreme in terms of aero, kind of in the same way that they are now, or at least in 17 and 18 they were, where the cars were so aero efficient and so many different parts of it, which created that turbulence and that wake, which prevented overtaking and made it more difficult to follow other cars. So they scrapped that. 2009, they simplified the rules and cut down the aero packages by around 50% in terms of downfall. So obviously the aim for the teams was to try and get some of that back. Now... One of the teams that put a lot of effort into this around 15 months or so was Honda. And Honda were preparing this car that they felt was going to really take them to championship glory as a works team. They've had a lot of success winning a few races as Honda uh, back in the early 2000s, particularly under Jensen Button when he was driving for them. And all of a sudden, the economic crash in 2007 and 2008 hit the world and Honda as a car manufacturer decided to pull the plug on this project with a Formula 1 team and they were unwilling to continue the approximate 300 million budget that they'd early promised and 700 staff based at the Brackley's headquarters which is now home to Mercedes after this crisis. So it was a real dark time for Honda. You know, the drivers were still working at the factories. There were a lot of personnel, a lot of good personnel that are still there today that were potentially in a position where they were out of work, out of a job, just like that. And it took a consortium led by Ross Braun um, in a management buyout in 2009 to save this team. And then what followed was, if you agree, Courtney, was one of the fairy tale stories of Formula One, almost equivalent to a Leicester winning the premiership kind of situation. I think that's been quite a decent uh, comparison because you think about it, as you said, my, you know, the employees and both the drivers didn't even think they'd have jobs done that season at one point. Yeah, it was a very dark time for them and I think as a fan watching it at the time, you see teams coming and going for Formula 1 a lot. I mean, back then, Super Aguri were in Formula 1 for around six months before they had to pull the plug on that because... They just lost funding altogether. You know, had other teams being bought out like Midlands, uh, Arrows, for example. Jaguar came and gone. That became Red Bull. Um, so, so many teams and outfits come into the sport and it never really worked out for them. And then there was Honda who, they came in originally as BAR back in 99. Um, you, know, they, you know, they had a decent car there and was working their way up and then become Honda outright. And then they had better glory. They had a lot of podiums, a few race wins under Jensen Button in particular, and Takuma Sato as well, I should say. And it got to this point where Honda were having a bit of a lull. You know, for a couple of years, they were kind of a bit behind the pace. 07, 08 weren't great from them. They had that Planet Earth car, famously the Planet Earth livery for Jensen Button and Rubens Barrichello a year before. 
which uh, everyone remembers that one if they saw that. The old Planet Earth livery. It was probably one of your yeah, favourites, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, I'll put that on the, uh, on the YouTube video. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to include that livery. Yeah. That's definitely a legendary one for... People were saying it was, it was slow deliberately because it ran on biofuels or it was running fuel efficient, even though that wasn't the case, but... You know, compared to petrol cars, but the world was a different place ten years ago. It really was. It's amazing how it's changed in that regard. But so from out of the doldrums, really came the Braun Double O One, and this car was it was incredible. It in the first test in Jerez when they tested it, the car was eight tenths of a second faster on outright pace than anything else we'd seen. It was almost like everyone was scratching their heads, thinking. What this team has just about made it. Not even sure if they're going to be able to make it to the next test in Bahrain, and it was like nearly a second faster than everyone else. You just couldn't believe it. It was amazing. I mean, yeah, no. I remember, I remember it because I wasn't like as much into the testing back then, but I remember I remember seeing like how it all turned out in Australia, and I was shocked. Labergasted, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, it started with a 1-2 in that race. It had four 1-2 finishes that season, five pole positions. It won eight out of the 17 races. Of course, six out of the first seven were won by Jensen Button. And of course, memorably, uh, quite famously, he won six out of the first seven races with the exclusion of China, which he come third in. That was won by Sebastian Vettel in the Red Bull, their first victory. And after that, uh, they never he never won a race after the first seven races and he went on to win the world championship um they won the constructors championship ahead of red bull um jensen as i said was champion that season rubens come third in that season as well and this was a very interesting car you know they had uh jory's yorgzander and loik uh, bijoir as the chief designers they did a great job despite ross braun joining the project quite late on with the car and he was very heavily involved afterwards but this was an interesting car for a lot of reasons. And one feature that obviously a lot of people still talk about today was the double diffuser system, or the double-decker diffuser, they like to call. And of course, Courtney, I'm sure you've heard of this double diffuser that Braun's championship oh, success yeah. was yeah. owed a lot to. And it's really interesting. So the story behind this was in 2009... The regulations regarding the diffuser had quite limited dimensions to it, of its main part of it. And the dimensions were around about 1,000mm in width, 300mm length, 175mm uh, in height. And this was part of the overall downforce reduction project. And the idea with the diffuser was all the channels on all the cars had to be the same, with no difference in height between the main central section and the side channel. So obviously the airflow would be... Uh, you know, the parts would be equal distance similar in its dimensions so that the airflow wouldn't be too different from car to car. They wanted to try and make it a standard part. Now, that was what they had in the rules. The problem was, is that there was quite a big loophole with this. And this was exploited very much so by Braun, Williams and Toyota. Now, if you remember back in the 2009 season, those were the three teams which were very, very quick at the start of the season. Especially Toyota, yeah. as well as Braun. Toyota were arguably the second best team before Red Bull got their act together, and then Ferrari and McLaren I remember, eventually. I remember the um, <laughs> I remember the phrase that was thrown around a lot of that season. I don't know if you remember. You remember the uh, 
Truly Train. Yes. Well, no, that Truly Train was made famous before that, but I understand what you mean. Like, because I think Truly, Truly Train was very much. Because <laughs> didn't he get pole position in uh, Malaysia? Well, I might be wrong, but I know they were at like front row of the grid regulars Toyota that season. Yeah, it was quite standing. Um, but the loophole the truly train yeah. became of quite, like became like a regular feature in races that season. Like. It, it was before memes were a thing, but it was definitely a meme ahead of its time. It really was the truly yeah. train. Um, for those who don't know, the truly train used to be used when Yano truly used to be a great qualifier, and it was a great F one driver. He drove for Renault, won a few races, won the Monaco Grand Prix in two thousand five, I think two thousand six. Um, one of them, and. He was a very good driver who had very had a very good start ability. He was good at starting off the line. And he got into a position in the race where his car was slower than some of the guys behind him. But he ended up developing a train of around, and I'm not exaggerating this, as much as eight or nine cars, so half of the field was literally following him in a train, all within a couple of seconds of each other. And if you were stuck in the middle of it, it was an absolute nightmare. But it was almost quite funny to watch. I'm not wrong in saying, I'm a cult. Yeah, no, he is. He's... <laughs> It was kind of like one of those, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to football. Yeah, Like, when you, when you, like, play against, like, one of those annoying lower league teams, but they have that one good defender that stops you every time you're about to get through. Oh, yeah, I know the one, yeah. I think we can all think of a few names. They usually <laughs> play for clubs like Burnley and Watford, but, you know... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I think it's kind of like the equivalent of um, when you're 1-0 up and you're up against an opposition like a Man City or a Liverpool and you're just parking the bus. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Yeah. You're just getting, and eventually you'll get past him, but most likely through a pit stop when he comes in the pits. But then, because he's got the undercut on you, he comes out and he's ahead of you again. So you've got to look forward to that for another 20 laps. It's the sort <laughs> of thing you grit your teeth with. I suppose, I, agree. I suppose they made some uh, entertainment. It certainly is. I remember that season in the, when he was in the Jordan um, back in the early 2000s and he was in Monaco and he got into a good position. He just held everyone up and it was hilarious. It was literally where the trolley train become famous back in his Jordan days. So, you know, back with Braun. So the loophole that Braun had exploited was that they were able to use a hole in the floor of the car and this allowed them to channel air up a ramp which acted as a second diffuser. And then it exited directly onto the lower beam of the rear wing. And what this did, it created a massive amount of downforce. It really did. It was as much as about 20-30% of downforce on this car was generated from this little hole that served like that little piece of innovation. And it helped Braun in testing to lap over 8 tenths of a second faster than anyone else in that first test. I mean, as I said, Williams and Toyota did this too, but it weren't as effective. I mean, Toyota went as far as even doing a triple diffuse on their system with multiple holes. And... A lot of teams were so shocked by this that they complained to the FIS saying it weren't illegal. It was, technically speaking, whilst they were complying with the rules, they technically weren't as well in terms of the diffuser dimensions. But they pushed it, the boundaries like they, they played with the line, didn't they? Like, just. Yeah, that was they incredible. Found perfect. Yeah. That yeah. no, was an incredible piece of innovation on this car and. You know, it served them so well. This is why they were so strong at the start of the season. And then obviously it, it fell away. But the damage was already done by the time the other teams had caught up. I mean, Red Bull was far and away the fastest car in 2009, which obviously preceded its success that of domination for the four seasons that followed it um, in 2010 to 2014, uh, 2013, I should say. 
And but yeah, the damage was already done, and other teams tried to incorporate assistance, but it was too late by then. So it was brilliant. Um, the car was designed so long ahead, so this was always going to be a great car under the regulations, regardless of the situation financially with the teams back in. I mean, when the car was ready to go, Honda was still interested and they were really excited. But obviously they felt with the, such a massive rule change and the amount of money required to make that work, they obviously decided not to take the gamble. And it's such a shame for them because they ended up losing out on winning a world championship. Yeah. As a result. Very true. Um, because of Honda pulling out, obviously the engine situation was a big thing as well. And obviously this did help for Braun. They had offers from Ferrari and Mercedes to have engines put into their car but the Mercedes engine was a lot easier to integrate into the existing car um, although they did have to make changes to the gearbox position they had to accommodate the engine so I don't know if you know this Corny but so a team like Force India for example who was also a Mercedes customer team like McLaren were as well they had to adopt a standard McLaren design transmission whereas Braun made their own version in house so McLaren would obviously take precedent in terms of the, what Mercedes had to do. They would follow McLaren's lead on this through their technical partnership that they had back then for, for 15 years, which was so legendary at the time. And as a res- and because of that, uh, Force India had to adopt this, but Braun decided not to go that way. They decided to you know, build their own in-house transmission, move their gearbox position, which really it did work out for them. It really helped them out a lot in that regard. Um, and it was another one of their key strengths of their car which a lot of people mostly focus on the diffuser, but they tend to neglect uh, that, you know, the expertise with their engine system. Another good thing about this car that I did find very interesting uh, from 2009 was it, the kinetic energy recovery system, or the KERS system, as it was. So the modern Formula 1 fans will know about the energy recovery system, or ERS, yeah, if you like now, now the yeah. ERS. But back yeah. in 2009... There's a new system which wasn't mandatory. Some teams had it, some teams didn't. And a, the curve system was kinetic energy recovery. So obviously the car's under braking, the traditional system now is the car's under braking, would um, use that kinetic energy and that heat made from braking and turn that energy into electrical energy which was used to be stored up in a battery which re- and a motor which weighed about 30 kilograms which is stuck in the back of the car. And that could be used for around 6.6 seconds a lap. It had as much juice as that much. And what it did is it, when you press this button, you could use it at any point during the lap. And it was worth around 80 brake horsepower. So not bad. I mean, enough power. You know, to, I enjoyed yeah. it using Kurs on the uh, 2009 Formula 1 game. Yeah, it was one of those where it was quite a clever system to use. And I always found it was better when you're accelerating. Yeah. So, you know, in the lower gears accelerating, you'd have much better acceleration. In the higher gears, I never really found its value too much. But that's what it did. And some teams decided to run it. Some teams decided not to run it. And Braun quite famously chose not to because they felt that having the extra 30 kilograms they'd have to carry over the lap. And obviously, that's the payback. You have the extra power to use, which is free energy to use. But you've got to carry that 30 kilogram box the whole yeah. lap and that could mean a lot in a Formula 1 car I mean it's worth a good couple of attempts like you know half a second lap in some cases and Ross Braun felt that it just it wouldn't work for them and as a result what they did with that free weight that they could use because they have to meet a weight limit of course they're not just going to carry 30 kilograms for the sake of it so they decided to add more ballast 
in in more efficient places like for example the front of the car and this improved the weight distribution so ballast for formula one fans who don't know much about ballast is it's about it's tungsten weights that are added in certain parts of the car to improve uh, handling more than anything else and Braun decided instead of running this 30 kilogram energy recovery system they felt they'd get more benefit by running extra ballast on the car towards the front end and it improved front end performance as well so they had the rear end performance from the diffuser and then the front end performance from the extra ballast and the combination of that worked out really well for them so you know it can work and it was quite amazing that a team that didn't use this kinetic energy recovery system won the championship and you had teams like Ferrari and McLaren that did use the kinetic energy recovery system and they're just scratching their heads at how to do it because they'd built their car around it to accommodate it and all of a sudden they found out that the better idea was to sacrifice that extra boost but you'd have a better all-round car and less weight to carry well the 2009 McLaren well they struggled a lot yeah at the start of the season but Lewis called it a dog of a car, quote-unquote. Mm, and the reason for that was they focused a lot on their 2008 car, and in a way so did Ferrari. And I think they kind yeah. of got caught with their pants down on these regulation changes because they weren't massive changes. The cars obviously changed a lot, but it was mostly focused around downforce, and they thought that, oh, we can get around that, we'll just use bits of innovation. But those cars in 2008 were so advanced because of the championship battles they had in 07 and 08. It really hit them. Whereas a team like Braun obviously known as Honda, and teams like Williams, Toyota, even Red Bull, you know, they were able to build their cars that were more efficient where they didn't have to rely on certain innovations like curves as much to actually get the benefit. And that's why they were so quick at the start of the season. And obviously as the championship went on, it was too late for anyone to catch them up. So yeah, a bit of a tech analysis on the fairy tale story there. It's a bit more than just a double diffuser that brawn, but it was a very impressive car at its time. Mm-hmm really was and Jensen Button still says it's still one of the most fun cars he's ever driven so I mean it's on the F1 2018 and 19 game as well and I've driven on it on the game and I I think it's a pretty good car as well it handles pretty well around about 7 seconds slower though than the current Formula 1 car In uh, but wow. then that just shows how much performance has changed in such a short time but of course the aerodynamic efficiency and downforce difference generated between the two cars from 2009 to 2019 is as i said night and day really so last but not least we're going to go to Courtney's final car now and uh, so Courtney, which is the last car on your list our final choice yeah. is the 2014 mercedes oh so the wo5 hybrid then any particular uh, reason? Yeah, any particular reason why you chose this one? Of course, there's plenty of Mercedes cars that have dominated in this hybrid, turbo hybrid era since 2014, winning every championship, drivers and constructors since. So why the 2014 one, the one that started it all? I think mainly because, from a personal perspective, I sat through four years of. Red Bull and Sebastian Vettel dominance. And I thought, this is never going to end. This is just going to go on and on and on. And as a Lewis Hamilton fan, it was becoming, yeah, a bit despairing. And then, bang, 2014, come even in testing, we had a good idea that Mercedes were miles ahead. And we saw Sebastian Vettel and Red Bull really struggling in testing. And it was like the F1 world completely changed. Obviously, the regulations changed things massively but 
the face of the sport just changed, didn't it, massively? It really did. Yeah, you're right, it certainly did. And um, th- this had been coming from Mercedes for a while. There was a lot of talk around when Mercedes are really going to you know, strike a claim to be in the top team of Formula 1. And obviously there was a performance-based incentive that Bernie Eccleston had laid out before these regulations for one of the teams in the chasing pack. So you had McLaren, Ferrari, Red Bull leading the way. And Bernie had put out uh, basically an incentive to some of the smaller teams that if one of them could really get it right, and this is if you wanted to call Mercedes a small team, relatively speaking, then there'd be a massive financial reward for them to really get them to stick in and see if someone could really break the tide. And these rule changes were mostly centred around the... Um, you know, this this was the first time the the new V6 turbo engines would be introduced for the first you know since 1988, since the day of the MP4-4 that we were talking about earlier. And Mercedes in particular, they were already making plans and coming up with potential solutions as early as late 2010 for this 2014 cars. Now, to put that in perspective, the actual rules themselves were not published bef- until mid 2011. So before anyone had even understood the rules and picked it up, as you know, you get legal teams and people understand the rules to make sure that teams can get on with these concepts, Mercedes were already at least six months ahead of everyone else. And then probably another 12 months on top of that as it already got underway, where some people like Red Bull and Ferrari and McLaren were too busy with their current projects in their championship battles during that era, where Mercedes were completely working away bit by bit until eventually, bang, they were a mile ahead of everyone else. When they started, uh, well, yeah, because I remember um, there were a lot of reliability issues in 2014, and Lewis Hamilton, funnily enough, was one of the first victims of it in Australia. But Nico Rosberg finished, I believe, what 30 seconds? Yeah, it was, it was 27 seconds, I think it was. But that's you're absolutely right. Yeah, and Lewis Hamilton had that uh, problem, with, obviously, with his engine reliability it was a cooling system which obviously what the amazing part about this package that mercedes had was whilst you know the cooling was so efficient to such a degree that they were able to minimize pieces of bodywork like the side pods they're so small which improved the aero performance but obviously at a cost where it was less efficient with cooling ironically and then obviously that led to issues that they had which they had to get on top of which mercedes had had for a long time with this engine concept but it was arguably one of their strengths as well. I mean, you look through the stats, The it was a 1.6 V6 turbo known as the PU106A hybrid. So it was like the power units as the jargon is now. Uh, it won 16 out of 19 races that season. It was the most in a single season at the time, which was beaten by the W07 in 2017. Um, it had got 18 pole positions in 19 races. Do you know which driver and race... Got the other pole position? Oh, oh, wait, wait. So 2014? Yes, it was. Oh, that, 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 that's a very good question. And it won't be surprising if you, if you once I reveal which who it is, if you don't guess it. I'm going to go with Danny Rick. So, no. So, it was actually not quite, actually. So, it was Felipe Massa in Austria. So, a very power-sensitive track are relying on a Mercedes-powered car, and the Williams obviously not great um, in corners, but in it was the car that challenged the Mercedes. They come second in the constructors that year, and you obviously had races in 
Austria and obviously the British Grand Prix where Bottas and Massa really took it to the Mercedes and yeah. everyone was getting excited and then obviously their performance dropped off because they just couldn't sustain it throughout the race. They just made mistakes. But it was just how dominant they were. They had 11-1-2 finishes that season, which was the record until the following year where the W06 one 2 finishes, which still stands as the record. Um, it's got the most constructors championship points ever of any car um, even if you take into consideration the F2004 with all the points uh, being revised because they changed that but if you revise the point system for 2004 to be in the same as now it would still been better than the F2004 it got uh, yeah 12 front row lockouts I think it was a double points finish though in Abu Dhabi yes that's right but I, I think that yeah that's that's also a good point as well but it still would have been more even if you took that out yeah um he had 12 front row lockouts. Um, Hamilton won 11 races that season, which is still the most that he's won in a season. Of course, the record being 13 by Michael Schumacher in a single season. Uh, Rosberg had five wins that year. By the halfway point in that season, Mercedes had won all but one race, uh, with the exception of... If, and the Canada? Season. Yes, that's right. And do, you remember, do you remember who yeah. that was? Yeah, that was Daniel Ricciardo's first win. Very good, very good. Yes, Daniel yeah. Ricciardo. So obviously won two races that year. Won that um, was it two? Was it three races he won? He won three. He won three. Yeah, yeah. Sebastian didn't win. Sebastian Vettel didn't win a race. That's right. And he won in Belgium. And uh, what was the third one? Was it Singapore? I can't remember what the third one was. Uh, Hungary. Yes, it was. No, that's right. Hungary. You're right because this was the famous yeah. race where him. Um, Alonso and uh, was it Rosberg were all battling and Alonso got ahead of Rosberg. Oh, Lewis, it was Lewis. Lewis, sorry, excuse me, excuse me. Yeah. So yeah, got ahead of Lewis on the tyres. It looked like Alonso was going to win. And Daniel Ricciardo was on fresh tyres and he completely got through Hamilton and because Hamilton had no tyres and then he got past Alonso uh-huh. just before the last lap. So this was really the season where Daniel Ricciardo stepped up from the Toro Rosso into the Red Bull and completely was brilliant. You know, he won so many great races that season. Um, quite memorable for that, almost as much as Mercedes for dominating it in a weird way. It was the highlight. Um, you know, it was you a know, co- you know what? Because I, I look back on that season as a fan, and it, and I look back on it, and I, and I just think it was either a Mercedes driver, but Daniel Ricciardo was there the moment Mercedes chipped over themselves. Yes, Daniel Ricciardo was there to pick up the pieces. Yeah, and he, and he does that better than probably almost anybody really in the current grid yeah. perhaps with the exception of Lewis Hamilton you you know just being able to pick up wins in races you're not expected to win but then when the opportunity comes he's there more often than not it's quite an interesting it's quite a great ability to have not a lot of drivers have this um you know it was another great car designed by Aldo Costa Jeff Willis another good car from him and Paddy Lowe was very involved Paddy probably at the peak of his powers at this time um but it was so i mean the big Big strength of this car was the engine, no doubt about it. It was way ahead of the other teams in head of en- in terms of engine tech. As I talked about before, they had revised airflow systems in the car, which uh, if it caused it allowed more refined uh, pipe work, in which resulted in less turbo lag. So obviously, with turbos with the airflow, you get a bit of a lag between changing. You know, you build up your revs to a certain point, and the car doesn't really go. And then, it, as soon as it gets to the top of the revs before changing gear, it just 
poof, you feel like you're being hit by a rocket. This Mercedes used to do that immediately. It was like, bam, you know, you'd feel like, oh my God, what is that pushing behind me? Because this is, that was the Mercedes in a nutshell. Um, and it resulted in, in less harvested power being required from the energy recovery system unit to keep the turbine in the engine spooled off the throttle. So what this meant was it improved efficiency, the car had more power, and it used a lot less fuel. It was so efficient in terms of its fuel economy. The rules back then was 100 kilograms of fuel per race. They had to carry the fuel from start to finish. There was no refueling, and it had to maintain an efficiency gain of around 30%. Now, remember, do you remember the Italian Grand Prix? I think it was in 2015. So not necessarily this car, but Mercedes were dominating. And they did the same the year before as well, where they dominated the race by like half a minute, and they were running in lean fuel mix. Because they had, they, and they just had so much spare fuel, they didn't really need. Do you remember? I think Rosberg was yeah, talking about it. Yeah, because on the, because that was a, a particularly uh, power slash fuel sensitive track, and it. Yeah, and they dominated so much. That was so far ahead. Yeah, and they just ran in lower fuel mix, and they had so much of it; it was ridiculous. And and as an advantage of that, you can run less fuel if your car's more economically sound with fuel. You can just run less of it, which makes it lighter, easier to handle, it gives you more options in the race. Um, with this engine design, they allowed the engine compressor to be further away from the turbine, which so it was further forward. And what this meant was it the turbine was usually spun by the exhaust gases, the hot exhaust gases in the car. And the W5, it had a smaller intercooler to maintain that temperature because it was so more efficient um, and to keep it under control. So what this meant was the Mercs could run with the smaller side pods, as I was talking about earlier, and it improved the aero performance, which... You know, it improves the airflow of the car, it's less drag, more downforce, and it gave them so many more options. But obviously the downside was because of that, they had less they missed opportunities for the calling, which obviously resulted in some retirements that Lewis had had in that year, and it was a concept that really hurt them, if anything, in the years to come in terms of their cooling issues, which took them a while to get on top of, if you remember. Especially- I think really until this I'd say properly only until like the season had just finished. Yeah. Even then, even then, they were racing like Austria, where they struggled. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, um, I mean, 2016, Lewis had problems with the engine as well for the same thing. It really hit him a lot, which cost him that championship, arguably, at the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the compression as well. Another thing with it, it being at the front of the engine, which they moved it as a result, they were able to move the car's gearbox even further forward, and this was a Big, big thing for them because the one thing these 2014 cars struggled with at first was front-end downforce, especially with the blown diffusers as well being taken away from the blown exhaust that Red Bull dominated so well with a stable rear end. So you don't want a loose one, of course. You need a nice, tight, stable rear end. And <laughs> that, that takes us back to episode one. Oh, memories. But yeah, the car's gearbox, they moved it forward and they were able to improve the weight distribution and also the centre of gravity the car had. And it just improved the handling so much on this car. So it was more than just a powerhouse in terms of the engine department. They were able to use that to such a way, and you still see this now, you know, that some of those things that James Allison was talking about, how the certain reconfigurations of their engine gives them so many aero options as well which is really important. Yeah. shouldn't really neglect that. Um, you know, other rule changes included a narrower front wing on this car and the removal of the lower rear wing and reduction to the size of the upper wing on it. So, you know, that, that was stuff that aiming to reduce in the blown exhaust gases we were talking about. And Mercedes did this so well. I mean, they always have, in the turbo hybrid era, I'll have to say the most elegant looking car, I think, of the pack. 
but with that in mind, they're still aggressively designed in its philosophy. You know, how a car should actually look. It really was an elegant design. Um, well, I think 2014, God, if you look back, they, they were some ugly cars. Yeah, they really were. Um, and I think and I think Mercedes were, was easily the best looking I think out, the, of the, out of the whole lot. It really was. And I think the Ferrari one was a funny one because that kind of looked like um, Rocky Balboa from the films after he'd gone 12 rounds with Apollo Creed, the way his nose would be busted all over the place. It just looked so bad. It's like someone throwing a brick at it. But the Mercedes... And, the noise, and, the noise, and, the, and that's the other thing with that season. The, the noise of the engines were... Like the difference going from the, from the V8s, weren't it? V8 yeah, before? that's right. The V8 cars, which were nice. They weren't as good as the V10s or the V12s, yeah. but they were still a lot better sounding. Um, especially under braking as well. The cars sound like they're, like they're throwing up out the back. Like, Bleh, you know, when you're trying to... <laughs> yeah. That's how it would sound. It was so bad. You almost think, oh my god, is that engine going? But it's not. That's just what it was underneath. That was all the blown exhaust and everything else. You know, if you if you guys still watching this, like you listen back um, to some of the cars in the V8 era, you listen to the Red Bull, especially when it's under braking and, and it goes past you. The sound of those blown exhausts, it sounds like you're, someone's throwing up out the back and it's really bad. And they're sort of eating popping candy at the same time, like you know, while it's doing that, it was so bad. But you know, that's that's what it was at the time. Um, I mean, the power unit was incredible. Uh, they estimated it was around 50 to 70 brake horsepower, more than all the other engine suppliers, which is insane. I mean, that the equivalent of brake horsepower that much in those cars, you're talking three quarters of a second in some cases, maybe more than that. And the beauty of this is that Mercedes could use this to run the car at higher downfall setup at, at tracks like Monaco or Singapore for example, if they needed to. And the extra power would help them combat the increased drag that they would be facing, which in turn would be even better for them because obviously the more drag you have, the better the car's going to be in the corners and slowing down and all that stuff. So that just suited them to a T. There's so many options. I mean, Christian Horner even said that the Mer the Red Bull boss, he said that Mercedes were around a second a lap faster on the straights than the Red Bulls were, which... That's just ridiculous. In Formula 1 terms, that's massive. Yeah, yeah. in Formula 1, that's absolutely mental. Like, a second on raw pace alone. Could you imagine being Sebastian Vettel in 2014, getting into that red ball and realising you're already a second behind the Mercedes before you even turn the corner because of the difference in power? I mean, the Renault engine was not bad um, in back in the V8 days, but compared to the Mercedes engine, it was just... GP, it's like Formula 1 versus GP2 or like Fernando Alonso said like the GP2 engine thing with Honda is literally the equivalent to that uh. just a different league but I mean what a car so uh, yeah so I think we've probably talked your ears off enough guys for this so thanks for bearing with us so those were some of the cars that Courtney has mentioned in his list are some quite iconic and amazingly innovative pieces of machinery I'm sure you'll agree so this time next week We'll be doing the next second part of this one just to recap you and we'll be going through some of the cars that I hold quite dearly to my heart as some of the greatest innovative pieces of machinery that Formula 1 that Courtney hasn't already named. He'd already taken half my list, so... Does, bro. <laughs> this is what happens when you let someone go first. Um... <laughs> no, no, I'm going to be eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard of lineups before? Um, in what sense? 
Uh, I'm not going to elaborate. I'm just going to leave that there. All right, then. I'll let the uh, followers and listeners to dwell on that one then and scar them mentally rather than <laughs> us do it for them. So, uh, yeah, so uh, on that note, I think it's a good time to say goodbye. Don't forget to check us out on social media, guys. We mentioned before, we've all got Twitter and Instagram pages, DNF1 underscore podcast for those, and the YouTube page as well. So, DNF1 F1 podcast. And of course, we also are available on all major podcasting platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Alexa TuneIn, and Stitcher as well, and many more, of course. Pandora as well, and that will be made in the UK. That will be available too. And uh, until then, guys, stay safe, look after yourself, and we'll see you on the next DNF1 F1 podcast. Take it easy. See you soon. Podcast Network.